This is the University Seventh-day Adventist Church in the sunny Orlando, Florida. We are glad that you are listening to our weekly podcast. Our prayer is that you will be blessed and challenged by our message today. And may God lead you in the next step of your growth in Him. Here is our future sermon. Good afternoon. I'm not used to saying that in church. Uh, Usually it's good morning, but uh, in this case, good afternoon. It's a privilege for me to be here. My name's Art Bakewell. I am the chaplain at Florida Hospital Fish Memorial, which is Orange City. And I've been there for five years. Prior to that, I was in DeLand for 10 years. I live in DeLand with my wife of 41 years. And I have two children. My daughter, who lives in, uh, in Port Orange, is 29. My son, who lives in my basement, is 28. I have two grandchildren, beautiful granddaughters. They don't live in my basement. They live in Port Orange with their mother. But my son lives in the basement with his wife, and they're lovely, and we enjoy them very much. How many of you here live in your parents' basement? Don't. I want to share with you a, uh, I want to share with you a story today. It's a wonderful story. You may have heard it before. This story is about a little bird by the name of Chippy. Now, Max Lucado, he's where I heard this story from. Max borrowed it from somebody else, and that's what preachers do. We borrow from people. If we're writing papers, we have to put that in the footnote. Otherwise, it's called plagiarism. But when you're speaking from the pulpit, we don't have to footnote that. And you can think I'm extremely creative. In this case, Max Lucado, borrowed this from somebody who was extremely creative. This is a story of Chippy the parakeet. Chippy the parakeet never saw it coming. One second, he was peacefully perched in his cage, enthralled in his own little bird song, when the next second, he was sucked in, washed up, and blown over. The problems began when Chippy's owner decided that she was going to clean the birdcage with a vacuum cleaner. Have you heard this story before? You're picturing it already, aren't you? Yeah, you're running ahead of me. Well, don't do that yet. You see, Chippy's owner hated that duty of cleaning up the birdie duty from the bottom of the birdcage. And so she had decided that the easiest, the best way to do this was to use the vacuum cleaner so she didn't have to touch any birdie duty. So she got out the vacuum cleaner and she removed the attachment from the end of the hose and she stuck it into Chippy's cage and she thought this was so good, it was so easy. And as she vacuumed up all the birdie duty, the phone rang. She reached for the phone. Hello? (coughs) Chippy was sucked in. She realized immediately what she had done. She had sucked little Chippy up into the vacuum cleaner. So she did immediately what she knew she had to do. She ran to the vacuum cleaner, turned it off, ripped open the bag. And there's little Chippy lying there in the midst of the dust, the dirt, the dust bunnies quivering. Little Chippy had been sucked in. Not being able to know what else to do, her mind going blank. She grabbed Chippy out of the basket, realizing he was so dirty and disgusting, he even had his own birdie duties sticking to him. 
She ran him over to the faucet and ran, run, and just turned it on and turned on cold water. And Chippy just laid there, quivering. Now she realized that Chippy was cold. Chippy was wet and soggy and cold. All the little dirty things were gone, but, but Chippy was, was still not right. And so she did the only thing that she could do. She grabbed the hairdryer and blew him out dry. Poor Chippy never knew what hit him. A few days after this traumatic event, the reporter who initially had told this story, that's how I know that Max didn't know this himself, see. The reporter who originally had written about this event contacted Chippy's owner to see how little Chippy was recovering from this, this incredibly traumatic ordeal. Well, Chippy's owner replied, well, Chippy appears to be fine. He sits in his cage. He's doing okay, I suppose, but Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. Chippy had lost his song. It's not hard to see why. Sucked in, washed up, and blown over in a matter of seconds. Before the bell, before the ringing of the telephone had a chance to stop wafting through the air, Chippy had been through the worst ordeal that he probably would ever experience in his whole little birdie life. It's enough to steal the song from the stoutest of bird hearts. Now the question I ask you, can you relate to Chippy? Most of us can, most of us can. One minute you're seated in a familiar territory with the song on your lips, and then with the coming of the mail comes the pink slip, the rejection letter. The doctor calls with the report from the biopsy. The sheriff delivers the divorce paper. The check bounces, or the policeman knocks on your door. <laughs> Scared you, didn't I? All of a sudden, you're sucked in in a black cavern of doubts and fears. You're doused with the cold water of reality, and you're stung by the hot air of empty promises. Your life that has been so calm up until now is stormy and dark. All of a sudden, you're hailstoned. You're literally pummeled by the demands of the storm, assailed by doubts, buried in questions. And somewhere in the trauma of all of this, you lose your joy. Somewhere in the storm, you lose your song. Have you ever felt this way? If you haven't, God bless you. And I pray for you, because you will. That's life. It's where we live every day. I've been through this. I know what it's like. I, a little of my own personal testimony. Six years ago one night, I'm sleeping in bed. My wife and I are asleep in bed. Two o'clock in the morning, my, my son's friend literally comes bursting into our bedroom throws on a light and said, come quick, there's been an accident, I think he's dead. Praise God, my son was, but his best friend had been killed, which sent us into seven years of court, jail, probation, and the uncertainties of how that was going to affect life. That same year, my daughter came and told me that she was a heroin addict. What do you say? Spent six years in varying descents of hell with an addict. We go through trauma, people. You know, some people seem to just sail through life, and they seem to always be happy and always have a smile and always have a song, and nothing ever happens to them. That's not true. It's just that some people have learned to sing through the darkness. Some people have learned to anticipate the dawn, even when it's so dark that they can't see the hand in front of their face or know where their next blessing will come from. And other people can only see darkness. 
Churches grow through traumas too, don't they? Congregations experience the hailstorms and are often drawn into that deep vortex of the cyclonic whirlwinds without warning, without fault, without blame. God's people are not immune from the discomforts, the struggles, the trials of life. We're not immune from the victimizations of evil in this world. In the Gospel of John, chapter 17, Jesus wrote, in verse 14 and 15, where Jesus is quoted by John as praying for his disciples prior to the crucifixion. And Jesus prays for his disciples. He prays this. He said, I have given them to the, your word, Father. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they're not of this world any more than I am of this world. My prayer, Father, is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Think of that. Jesus did not pray that we would be delivered from the evil of this world. We live in a sinful world that's full of evil. And it's ripe with the consequence and the calamity of sin. The same world that sent righteousness to die a tortured death on the cross is the same world that you and I live in today. The same world that you and I call home. And the same world that Jesus called upon his Father saying, I'm not asking that you spare them from the calamities or the consequences or the pain of this world, Father, but that you keep protecting them, meaning literally to guard them, metaphorically to keep them in their being. In other words, as I have prepared them for your service, keep them, Father, in that. Let that preparation guard them within the world. And do not let the evil one, Satan, have them. So here we are, my friends, right in the middle of a storm, the storm of life, and right at the vortex of the cyclone of this sinful world. That's where we live, literally in the eye of the storm. And we're not going anywhere until that day when Jesus comes and says, well done, let's go home. We're here. So how do we respond to the circumstances of life that threaten us? The literally, the circumstances of life that threaten to upend us, to completely capsize us, to destroy the tranquility of our lives and our homes, of our loved ones and our churches, even faith itself. How do we respond? To do this, I want to direct your attention to the life and to the experience of Paul, the Apostle Paul. For I believe that it's in the life and the experience of the Apostle Paul that we find perhaps, arguably maybe, but perhaps the very best example of how to weather the storms of life while at the same time maintaining not only faith, but hope, optimism, even joy, our song amidst the storm. We shared for, I shared with you this today as our, as our passage, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. If you have your Bible, I invite you to uh, open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to be reading from chapter 4. Uh, if you have your e-Bibles with you, some of you maybe brought your tablets, turn off Facebook, go straight to the Bible. Yes, pastors are getting savvy to those ideas, aren't they? If I sit here like the Bible, I can watch Facebook. Look like I'm turning to the text. Facebook. Facebook. Yeah, turn off Facebook. Go to, go to your Bible program. Read with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18. And actually what I want to do is to read more than that. I want to go back and I want to start at verse 6. Verse 6. For God who said, light, light, shine out of the darkness. Now this is, I'm reading from the New International Version. It may be a little different from what you see up here. Let light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we 
have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our bodies. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal bodies. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Go to verse 16. Therefore, because of this, therefore do we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweigh them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. What is unseen is eternal. Now, I have in the past asked congregations to share with me their light and momentary troubles. Interestingly enough, some of the things that they say. Recently, I had opportunity to deliver this message at a congregation, and I asked them specifically, and we don't have all that much time here today, so I just want to say, I asked them specifically, share with me your light and momentary troubles. I'm going to share their list with you. I dare say it's like yours. One individual said, my light and momentary Troubles are my household clutter. Driving the 408, that is light, but it may not be momentary. Not getting enough sleep. Waking up at 5 a.m. for no apparent reason. Keeping my patience. Being nice to irritable people. Not being, not having the right ingredients when I'm cooking something. <laughs> Cell phone distracted drivers. Getting sick. That was a list of light momentary troubles. In the past when I've done this, I've gotten other things like, oh, getting toilet paper stuck on my shoe. Light momentary troubles. It's annoying. It just bothers me when that happens. I want you to read with me Paul's description of his light and momentary troubles. Now remember what you've thought of. You, you think of your own light and momentary trouble. I'm not going to put anything on you, but you just think, what is your own light and momentary trouble? Now compare this to Paul's. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, the last half of 23 through 29. This is his light and momentary trouble. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones, three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and a night on the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in dangers from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. I have been cold and naked and besides everything else I face daily. The pressure of my concern for the churches. Who is weak among you that I do not feel weak with you? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? Paul's light and moment struggle. Taking a look back at that list, how does that look to you? Do you begin to see the disconnect in our own thinking in that compared to Paul? 
Do you see it? For us, light and momentary troubles are an inconvenience. They're an annoyance. They're the gum on the shoe of my life. For Paul, it's life-stopping, earth-shaking, perhaps life-ending events. Prison, floggings, five times, no less. Beatings, stonings, shipwrecks, exposure, danger from all sides in every circumstance, untold, untold labor, sleeplessness, hunger, poverty, thirst, nakedness. And that's what Paul describes as light and momentary troubles. Do you see the disconnect? Part of the reason that we lose our song in the midst of the storm is because we have lost our perspective on life. Paul says that, that these life-shattering events are nothing but light and momentary troubles that are achieving a greater glory for us that far outweighs anything that we can possibly experience. Because what we see, what we feel, this life that we're encountering is not real, he says. What is seen is temporary. Certainly we feel it. But he says it's temporary, and it's achieving a great glory, a goodness in us that far outweighs anything we may be encountering at the moment. Because what we see, what we feel, what we are going through is temporary. But what God has prepared is eternal. And these things that we encounter in this life are but preparatory as we learn to encounter the grace of God. Paul in his sickness wrote, I believe it's in chapter 12, he says, Three times I prayed that God would take my affliction from me. We don't know what that affliction was, but we know that he was afflicted with something that sounds like it was painful. Some speculate it may have been a painful condition of the eyes because he, he was virtually blind, many suggest. And that's why he used uh, secretaries to do a lot of his writing for him. When he wrote in his own hand, apparently it was, he wrote quite large and people could tell the difference between what he had written and what his secretary had written. And at times he would say, see now, see this, see the large letters, that's me writing this. Paul prayed that God would take that away. Some speculate that his eye problem started when he had the vision of Jesus, the vision of Jesus, when he was blinded by the glory of Christ, that vision. Paul says he prayed three times that God would take whatever this affliction was. Take it from me. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. So Paul says, I glory in my weakness. I glory in the afflictions of this life because when I am weak, he is strong. Do we have reason to sing in the darkness of the vortex of the storm? Yes, we do. Because we know that when we are in the midst of the storm, God's grace is greater. What is grace? It's unmerited favor. It's God giving us of himself. Not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, of who he is God's grace it says I am sufficient for you I'm all you need God's grace is sufficient his strength is perfected when I am at my weakest I love that song I sing because I'm happy I sing because I'm free his eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me God is there for Chippy, and he's there for Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, bless us in the trials of our storm, and may we always see your face. In the storm clouds, let us see your face. In the promise of the silver lining, let us see your face. Father, may that be sufficient to give us song in the night. Amen.